You are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is The Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that and like you right now. So be encouraged and let your light shine. So were you at the Upper Room at the beginning? I started Upper Room in 1975. So it was... It was a Bible study up above Russ's. So it was Because they started in 71, right? 70... I thought it was 72 or 3, but it hadn't been going long. And how long have you guys been at Real Living now? I don't know. Since we left here, maybe know, eight years, like eight, okay. eight or nine. I'm thinking so we like left 14. We left beginning of 15 or we left at the beginning of 14. I gave the elders 11 months notice. <laughs> so then I built the kitchen because <laughs> I promised I'd That's, do that. We miss you guys here. We'll be here two weeks in January. All right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. You ready? I'm ready. Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners. It's Bet. It's Cat. And we are here today with a special guest, Mr. Bob Bertelson. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Glad to be here. Bob is a longtime member of the Upper Room Fellowship. He started way back... 1975. 1975, when it was a Bible study at the Bible study slash coffee house. Did you get coffee then? Well, I'm not a coffee drinker, but they probably had it. (laughs) But it was above the veterinarian's office, Russ Striefler's veterinarian office. It was a little bitty room with a hundred kids in it and it had knee walls so that it was real tight in the corner and then they'd say, let's all stand up and worship Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd hunch over as best you could. He grew up with Bruce Striefler. They were in each other's weddings and are good buddies. But Bob and his wife Lori moved to Real Living Ministries about eight years ago. Bob's wife, Lori, is a part of the ministry team there. And so they are still good (laughs) friends of the upper room. Actually, Bob's going to be speaking on finances in January for two services. Mm -hmm. So we're looking forward to that. Mini series. We love Bob and Lori. Bob's been in business well over 30 years, and he founded his current company, A Plus Powder Coaters Incorporated, in 1996. He's worked diligently to develop a great culture in his company where employees have established the values of respect, attitude, and quality. It's on his shirt logo as we speak. A-Plus Powder Coaters Incorporated was named Business of the Year in 2016 by the Columbiana, Ohio Chamber of Commerce. No way. That's an awesome award. He gives that credit to his employees for their values and culture. Bob mentors several businessmen, helping them establish godly principles in their companies. Academic record, he says, is not that impressive. (laughs) Bob struggled in high school and took a few college courses, but he says what he lacks in formal education was replaced with learning by trial and error, hard times, and life lessons. And I love this because I think some young people need to know that you don't have to excel in college to be successful. So right. you're a great example of that. Thank you. The school of hard knocks, right? That <laughs> yeah, that can be a tough from? one. <laughs> I'm almost graduated it. <laughs> Bob's passion is being a good steward, something that's been on his heart for over 40 years. And we'll hear more about that as we get into the podcast. He is a speaker at various churches and conferences on stewardship, giving, and finances. Bob considers himself a financer of the kingdom. What do you mean by that? 
we can talk about that. Get into it later. We could get into it later. <laughs> <Okay>. It's long. <laughs> okay. And it happened here at the Upper Room. Okay. Bob just finished writing his second book. His first book is called Created to Make Wealth. We've got a copy here. It's beautiful. And he just got a copy of his second book in the mail today. Monday. Monday. So it's hot off the presses. Aww. And his second book is The Christian Entrepreneur, a blueprint for Christ-centered business. And it's going to be available soon. How do they get a hold of that? It'll be on Amazon. It should be out in a couple weeks, I would say. That's exciting. When Bob's not working on business, mentoring businessmen or speaking at churches and conferences, he can be found at the tracks where he's an avid race car driver currently racing a 63 Corvette or in his garage building classic muscle cars and trucks. The Upper Room baked lots of cookies for his show he just had this yeah. past week in Pittsburgh. It went awesome. It was a great time, and we really appreciate the cookies. In fact, we had a total between the two churches, 116 dozen cookies, and everybody's like, that's sort of their highlight of the event is coming and Hey, look at all the cookies and snacking on cookies all day. And it's like we- the Youngstown <laughs> cookie table at a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> Bob and his wife, Lori, currently reside in Columbia, Ohio. They have three adult daughters, and Bob and Lori are part of Real Living Ministries in North Lima, Ohio. We're so happy. This is his first podcast, even though he's been on the circuit for speaking and conferences. So welcome, Bob. Thanks. Good to be here. Sort of being back home. I know. I love it. Help build this room. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bob, tell us who or what turned your light on. Well, when I was in junior high, I was trying to fit in. I was 13 or 14, and I was just trying to fit in. I was trying sports, and I'm not a real big guy, so I didn't do real well. I got playing time, but I wasn't a star, and I really did it because I just wanted to fit in, and I just didn't. And there was a, a girl that I knew that her name was with a last name with a B, so she always sat in front of me in every class because we were alphabetical. And she kept saying, you need to you need to come to the upper room with me. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. And she was relentless. And I remember I was playing football in eighth grade. She just hounded me. And I finally, she said, just promise within a year you'll go and I'll quit nagging you. And I'm like, okay, I can do that, thinking she would forget. Spring rolled around and she reminded me that I'd promised to go to, to the upper room. Reluctantly, I g- grabbed two of my buddies and said, you guys got to go with me. I'm not going by myself. I don't know what this thing is or anything about it. They said they'd go, and at the time, the upper room met above Russ Streifler's office in this little room, and it was Mondays and Wednesday night from, I, think, I want to say like 7 to 9. And so we went. What I was really looking for was just to be loved and accepted, and that's why I tried sports. I was actually hanging out with all the kids that would eventually get into drugs and smoking and drinking, just trying to be accepted and loved. And when I went to the upper room, I really felt that, and it took probably till August, I started just thinking about what they were saying and how they accepted me. And I wanted what they had. One night at home in my bed, I just thought about it. In fact, that day someone had said, where would you go if you died? And I thought, I really don't know, probably hell. Thought about it, I thought, I know what the answer is, it's Jesus. And when I asked Jesus, then I went from being pessimistic and to becoming optimistic and just positive about things. I mean, there was a real change And it happened during the summer when we were off school. Well, I decided not to play sports my freshman year. Somehow my reputation of going to the upper room got out because when I went back to school, I was known as the Jesus freak. I wasn't really offended by it. I was proud to wear the badge of the title. 
things just changed for me. People knew and saw the difference in me, and I just was excited and on fire for God. So you spent your whole high school season learning and developing, growing, being discipled. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was the best Christian. I don't know that I am now. <laughs> I got in some trouble and I'm a little bit ornery, so it wasn't. Uh, I wasn't probably the best example, but yes, I grew a lot through the upper room. I can't remember. I think it was towards my senior year that they actually started going to a Sunday service. Started playing guitar because when I first went to the upper room, there was like five guys with guitars, long hair. Uh, oh, that's cool! And so within a few months, I I bought a guitar, started playing and. I think I was 15 when I started playing an upper room worship team, and I played for 38 years, I think, with the upper room. Wow. Played with Kate and Chris a lot. I know these two, Beth was probably a teenager when I first met you and you guys came back, but I knew your parents, Kate, before you were ever born, before they were married. That's crazy. Hanging, hanging out with your Uncle Carl and a bunch <laughs> of us hanging out, so that was all back in high school. And But, but we had name. crazy parties at their house. I mean, they were mainly Christians. There'd be hundreds of kids and there's no drinking, no drugs. It was really clean. My freshman year, I was out till three and four in the morning. My parents didn't really care because they knew where we were and it was a good group of kids. Yeah. I remember one time I came home at six and my mom said, that's just a little too late because I can't go to sleep till you get home and I need some sleep. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little too early. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, oh, I thought it was a great night. <laughs> hundreds of kids. Oh my gosh. Could you oh, imagine? Yeah. No, like I couldn't either. My limit's like eight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, houses are packed, yards are packed. I mean, cars are up and down the street. That's so cool. I mean, we we had a good time. A lot of times there might only be fifty or sixty, but there were times I know there was over a hundred. That's still a ton. I love that so much, though. We're always talking about doing life together, community, and stuff like that. But that is such another level of doing community and life together and Jesus together that my head's like, I don't know. And then we'd all go to Jesus 76, Jesus 77, or these big farms. I mean, it's sort of like Woodstock, but Christian style. You know, hear bands and speakers. Yeah. I have no idea how many tens of thousands of people were there. It was pretty wild. So we heard a little bit about your passions but tell us mm. what lights you up. God and finances. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you asked earlier. And cars. And cars, yes. And my family. I like it all. But you had said something earlier about finance or the kingdom. I wrote yeah. that. And when I was young, I really didn't know what I wanted to do business-wise. Or, you know, I was just working. And I just was loving God when I got out of school. I didn't want to go to college. I, I really struggled to read and comprehend and find it really ironic that God would have me write books when I struggle to read or comprehend anything. You know, God's got a good sense of humor. I was going to say, isn't he good like that? Yeah. Don't you love it? Well, how he brings things around and you know, us. But early on, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I had an opportunity to get into business. And I remember I was, I was attending the upper room and we were married. I was struggling with something that seemed to be prevalent in most churches, and that was, what's your calling in life? What are you going to do for God? And honestly, I didn't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a missionary. I didn't want to be evangelist. I I didn't know what I want to do, but none of those sounded appealing. And hmm. I remember surrendering to God saying, God, if that's what you have for me, I'll do it. But I really don't want to do it, but I'll do it. <laughs> and and I started a uh, chance to buy my dad's company, and we started to make really good money. And I was just struggling, Lord, I'm, I'm really happy when I work. I'm not saying I wouldn't be a pastor or anything, but man, what is my calling? And I was just praying and just, I was really torn over it because I felt like I was less than because I just wanted to work. 
and people, you know, well, you need to be going at least on a short-term mission. You need to do these things. And it's like, really doesn't appeal to me, but I'll do it if I have to. And long story short is, God started to speak to me. I created you to make wealth. I created you to help ministries. And I was just praying over that. And I came up with, I'm a financier of the kingdom. And what I mean by that is, I don't know a single ministry that doesn't need money. What ministry doesn't have some type of expenses? So my job, I felt, was I could create the wealth to help them. And my heart is a, is a giver. I love to give to ministries, to missionaries. And my wife and I support, I can't even count how many missionaries and missions and things that we do. But when I f- discovered that, there was such a release in me. And I started, okay, well, how do I educate people? And I remember talking to the pastors of the upper room. I said, I just want you to know where I feel I fit in. And this isn't what most people will say. And they embraced my idea of being a financer of the kingdom. They encouraged me in it. You know, that that's awesome. God's put you in the business place to minister, but to make finances, to partner with ministries. And so I fulfill my destiny when I can earn money and meet their needs. And they fulfill their destinies because they have the money to do what they're called to do. And uh, I love that because really cool. what do they say? Only 2% of Christians have the capacity to like be paid for being a pastor. I mean, it's low. It's very low. And so when there was that pressure to be like, what is your calling? What are you doing for Jesus? <laughs> we felt like it had to be spiritualized and be like, oh, I'm doing something that yeah. we would consider paid working for God. And I think that shift has happened where people realize that a lot of people are called into the marketplace and called into the homes or called into education and they are working for God in a different venue. So I love that. And I think people need to hear that. If you have a passion and you're like, I want to serve you, God, but there's no paid pastor positions for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if they're not people persons, they shouldn't be a pastor. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Also that. But I mean, there has been that feeling in the past where if you're going to minister, it has to be somewhere within the church. You know, you need to be inside of the church in order to be making an effect, which is not true. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing more change in the marketplace, the business place that there's a place to be. You know, I have 50 employees. In a sense, I'm pastoring them. I'm pouring into their culture, into them. So I've sort of ended up in that field and, you know, not maybe in a church, but there's still a mission field there. You know, no matter where we work, I have a friend that says, we may be the only Bible some people ever read. They're not running around looking for the word. They're looking at us. They're observing us, how we act, how we interact. And eventually they say, I want what you have. I think there's... Like you did. Yeah, absolutely. It just, you know, I feel like no matter where we're at, we can be serving God. It doesn't have to be in a pulpit or in a foreign country. You know, there's a mission field wherever we're at, whether it's at home with our children or if it's working for somebody else, that there's importance there. and We have an opportunity to shine. I love your example, too. When you said 2%, it made my ears perk up because Chris was just sharing even a couple of weeks ago... He was sharing kind of percentages of how people in America and church people as well give. And so I love that you're here and I love the example that you live because your life and your books and your example is about stewardship and giving. And Chris was saying, we really generally give about two to three percent of our earnings. And then we give ourselves a pat on the back and they're like, you did great. (laughs) But thank you for being an example of joyful and extravagant giving because that's so biblical and it's so good. We can talk more about that, but 
No problem. Did you know only 5% of pastors tithe? That's the stat that just blows me away. Um, I've never no, heard that. No. Where do they probably think numbers? I'm tithing my time. Yep. <laughs> no, probably so. <laughs> yeah. That's awful. Yeah. I would never have imagined that in a million years. Yeah, I was shocked when I, I found that online, uh, fascinated by stats and things. So that was one of the ones that just blew me away. But I am grateful that the pastors at the upper room do, because I know that for a fact. And, and the church and, ties, that's good. Yes. Sir. When I travel, what I find is most churches that tie, they're very healthy. Churches that don't are usually very dead. When the pastors and the, and the body doesn't buy into and believe in it, just so much reward in it. Yes. You know, so we're going to really talk a lot about that in January. There's so much goodness in that. So, Bob, I think you're a very shiny person, and you've been letting <laughs> yes. your light shine in more than one field. You know, you do car races, and you are ministering to people. It's not an overt ministry, but that field that you're in, in a passion that you love, a hobby that you love, you're still showing God's love. Tell us more about your books that you wrote. You know, you want to take this information that you've gained through your life experience and you want to share it with other people. So shine some light on the topic of finances for us. The first book, Created Make Wealth, was just sort of, in essence, my story and just five keys to to what I've done in my life. And I don't know how I really came across them. They're just life lessons and started implementing them in my life. And my finances just started growing because of them. And, you know, I just feel like that's a book more to individuals, whether you're in business or not. A lot of my stories, and I, I use a lot of stories and examples in my books, are from business side because that's who I am and what I live in, but they can relate to our personal lives. What were the five lessons? So the five keys are stewardship, tithing, giving, thankfulness, and spending. Just sort of how you handle your finances and how you look at them, changing your perspective of them. You know, one of the things that I think we forget about is thankfulness. One of my favorite sayings is, what if I only had today what I thank God for yesterday? Do we take time to thank God for the things that we have, not just physical or health, not just the things we buy, but do we take time when God meets needs and provides for us? I think thankfulness gets overlooked. I think we all know to tithe and give, and we're trying to be good stewards, but are we thankful in things? Monica talks about this a lot with thankfulness, and she insists that Gratitude and thankfulness changes people's DNAs. I would agree. Another favorite saying, if I can get it right, is it's not happy people that are thankful. It's thankful people that are happy. Mm. When I'm having a bad day, if I can just stop and start thanking God for a few good things, I have a warm home, food every meal. If I start thanking God for those, my, my whole attitude, my demeanor changes, and I go to being positive again. So you are a big fan, even though it's one of five keys, of stewardship. Yes. Tell us your story about that. I don't know that we have a lot of time for that because it <laughs> really is a long story. I will be sharing a lot of that in January about how I became a steward. But for some reason, when I was probably back in high school, hearing, well done, good, faithful servant, you've been faithful in a few, I'll put you in charge of many, parable about the bags of gold, just really struck me that he's, that's stewardship. And there's just something in me that cries out, I want to hear, well done, good, and faithful servant. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that's been a theme in my life and everything I do, Lord, will you find that I did good here? Did I do okay? Mm-hmm. 
I don't think I'm the only one that wants that approval. Right. You know, we all look for approval, whether it's our parents or our peers, somebody, we're looking for approval. But in the long scheme of things, we're really looking for God to say, well done, good and faithful. And stewardship leads to increase because it says, you've been faithful in a little, I'll put you in charge of much. It's been proven in my life that I've been tried to be really a good steward of my finances and honor God with it. And it's my finances just grown and grown. I, I never dreamed I'd be the position I'm at now to be able to give and help so many people. I think stewardship's the real key. It's realizing that it's God's things. I'm just stewarding it. Stewardship as a definition is the careful, responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. So it's telling me if it's entrusted to my care, I really don't own it. It's somebody else's. Well, it's God's. The Bible tells us the gold and silver is his. So there's scriptures that tells us it's all his. So I really don't own anything. I just need to steward it. So that's sort of been a theme of my life. And just it's evolved over 40 years to get to where I'm at now. And I look forward to evolve even more. You know, I don't think I've attained a level. I think there's more to grow in. Can we talk about the kitchen and the building? Sure. You're also a visionary. We are blessed at the upper room by Bob's vision. He was like, this kitchen that we have is not not adequate. And we can't really serve people out of our little kitchen. And if you don't know what the old kitchen looks like, it's currently our chair storage room. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so he had a vision for a kitchen. Tell us about your vision and how you helped the kitchen and the building addition happen. I went to Bruce one time and I said, what's our plans to expand? And he said, what plan? <laughs> and I said, well, I really believe God wants to grow the upper room in numbers and new sanctuary and things. And he said, well, I don't really have one. I said, well, can we start a fund? He's like, well, absolutely. So Laurie and I started giving and we started talking at the church. You know, we'd like to eventually build a sanctuary and more Sunday school rooms and, and got people on board and, and just started giving to it. When it came time, I don't even remember what year we built. 2000 something, but Ron Myers and I partnered together and I was a general contractor and built many commercial buildings for myself and a few others. And I brought in contractors and we designed and built the sanctuary. And while we were doing that, several people came to me and said, we really need a kitchen. The kitchen's just terrible because there's basically a closet with a stove and a refrigerator in it. (laughs) And they said, we need something better. And I said, we don't have the budget right now. But I said, if you raise the money, I'll build it. And they said, well, how much do we need? I said, we probably need a hundred to 150,000, just ballpark. I said, if you get us start giving to that, to the sanctuary was built. I said, we start giving to that when we get there, I'll build it. And I felt that the Lord was speaking to Laurie and I to leave to go to real living. I told him I'd build a kitchen before I left. And so like, Bruce, where are we at finances? And he said, I think we're there. And so I started drawing up plans and calling contractors I know and getting quotes. And we built a kitchen before I left. Yeah. And you've also helped Real Living get a building, renovate a building. It was a warehouse and now it's a warehouse of worship. It was was during COVID, which who's buying buildings during COVID? I think the only church in the state that bought a building in the (laughs) midst of COVID and then remodeled it coming out of COVID and started services last June as things really open back up. $721,000. What's that? That was the total for the new side. The kitchen, $169,000. All of that will be paid off this year. Oh, that is awesome. I am glad to hear that. Yes. So We are finishing our mortgage for everything 
in October. That is awesome. And that's partially in great thanks to you. We have an amazing building and a phenomenal kitchen in which every time we have people come in catering, and oftentimes we let people use the kitchen from outside the fellowship, people who are in town who need some help, they come in. So I designed it so people could move around and it's spacious and designing it for people to actually cook and enjoy it being in there. 2008 is when we put the new sanctuary on. Okay. 1988 was the first building. That's right. We've been meeting at Joshua Dixon School before that, setting up and tearing down every Sunday. So we've been here building, adding on, adding on for 34 years. We have you to partially thank you for that. And that is just really cool. And yes, it is like you're saying, stewardship is so beautiful. And yes, it's a responsibility, but in some ways, it's such a weight off your shoulders. <laughs> it's been a bless. It's a blessing to be a steward. It's so fun to say we're able to pay off the mortgage and. That's awesome. It offers new freedom. Then it's really exciting. I'm very excited for that room to be able to pay it off. That's that is just awesome. So Bob, you're a business owner, and as mm-hmm. somebody who's also in the marketplace. You know, you had mentioned you're pastoring your employees, but talk to us about how you do that. What's your vision for your employees and how you're ministering to them? That's a great question. I spend a lot of time trying to encourage them. To me, my employees are my greatest asset. And I tell them that we did a cultural remodel about nine and a half going on 10 years ago where the culture in our company wasn't that great. I tried to care for people, but we had negative people, and they, they're just cancerous when you have a person that just always complains. And mm-hmm. I was always afraid to get rid of them because of paying unemployment. And I just got to a place that I was just frustrated with it, and I wanted people to care about their jobs, care about each other. And I met Michael Ross, and uh, we were actually trying some classes that he was doing with our employees And I just got frustrated one day when a guy called in and said, how many points do I have? And we're on a point system for attendance. And when he found out it was low, he's like, I'm just not coming in. In a small shop, when somebody doesn't show up, it makes a lot of extra work for everyone else. That was the final straw. And I remember I went into Terry Watson, my salesman's office, where I go to vent. And I said, Terry, I just got to vent. I said, I'm just frustrated that no one seems to care about A+, other than a couple of us. And I said, I know it's not the all of alls for everybody, but you should care about your job. And he said, yeah, you're right. And so we called Michael Ross and said, would you come in? And he, he was able to come that afternoon. And I told him what I was feeling about it. And he said, you need a cultural remodel. And I'm like, a what? He's like, <laughs> you've got to get rid of all the negative people and you need to build from the ground up. What's your culture? What do you believe? And he said, everybody has a set of beliefs. You don't think about it, but you believe in them. Are you a person of integrity? You're just a person of integrity. It's not something you think, oh, I should do this because it's the right thing. You just do it because you're a person of integrity. You know, somebody drops their their wallet and money falls out. Do you have to think, well, do I keep the money or do I give it back? You just automatically pick it up and say, excuse me, you dropped your wallet. We wanted a culture where people wanted to be there and things. And so he said, you got to get rid of the negative people. And so we scheduled a meeting the following Tuesday with all both shifts, paying them for their time, shutting down our, our production for hours to be able to meet, bring Michael in, and we let two people go. Terry and I sat and went through the list of who we have, and we said, there's a couple people here that just, they're not going to change. They're just so negative. 
So we got rid of them and we held a meeting. I started out by apologizing for making them work with negative people, saying there's two less people here. I said, I don't want anybody to feel threatened about their job. You're here because we think there's potential in you, but things are going to change. And I have your back from this moment forth. We will no longer tolerate negative behavior. We're going to work on our culture as a group. And I said, I brought in and I introduced Michael Ross and we established our values of respect, attitude, and quality. And the employees came up with it. It wasn't something I thought of at midnight, wrote it down, said, here's what you're going to do. The guys came up with, this is what we want to be known for. We want to be known as having a good attitude, having respect for people and doing good quality work. And they developed meanings behind them. They came up with a mission statement, be our best for everyone's success. And they said, we, what we mean by that is our customers are successful in the marketplace. They'll be loyal to us. And that will be make us successful, which is our job security. So we've just built upon that. We do all kinds of things for the employees now. We celebrate your birthday. We celebrate your anniversary day plus by giving them a gift card. And I go out and thank them. We meet once a week for a short meeting. We try to keep it positive. What's going well in the shop? There are things we have to address. We're just starting all kinds of things that we do for the employees. We have employee day where they can bring their family to work after hours so the family understands what they do. And that was a huge success. And it came out of one of our meetings. A guy said, you know, my family doesn't understand what we do. Can we just have a dinner here? So it's a potluck. I buy brisket and we do potluck and come for an hour and show your family around what you do. And the spouse is just responding. It's like, now I understand what he's talking about when he comes home or she comes home and says what they did all day. I have some clue what was happening. You know, we, we actually have an intercessor on staff that we pay someone to pray for A-plus, and she's known as the prayer lady. She doesn't come to the office, but if people have needs, they'll say, hey, can you let the prayer lady know that you know my marriage is struggling or my aunt's sick or this or that? And so we bring God into it that way. If people are struggling, we'll send them to get counseling, try to help them, but we try to be involved in their lives and just love on them, basically, and try to treat them the way that I'd want to be treated as an employee. What was the shift that you saw once you did that? We saw reworks go down, a happier place. People enjoyed being there. Our second shift shows up at least a half hour early because they just want to hang out. It's a good environment. You know, I'll get there right at 1.59 when I start at 2. They're there a half hour before. And guys that are quitting, you know, before is that if they're done at 2 o'clock, they were out the door at 2 or 1. Now, might be 15 after before they finally make it out of the break room because they're talking with people. But they enjoy being around each other before they'd never invite me to do stuff with them. But, hey, we're hanging out this weekend or we're going for wings. You want to come? They include me. And I think I have a pretty good rapport with most of them. And it's definitely a different culture. That's really neat. In the new book, The Christian Entrepreneur, I write about that. Michael writes a little bit about it. But it really changed our business and feel that Businesses need to get away from just focusing on business only. We need to focus on our, our employees. They are our greatest asset. And I talk a lot about that in the book, that we need to value them. I was at a seminar years ago, and they asked, what's the number one thing employees complain about? And everybody said, wages. And they said, no, not being appreciated is number one. They want to be appreciated and valued. And so if we do that, they feel more part of things. And it's a give and take. They feel valued and they value working there and they do a better job. Our reworks went down when we started working in culture. They care about what we produce and what we do. And they're part of the team. Hmm. And we are a family. 
We have this saying at work, if you don't feed your staff, they'll eat your customers. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. You I know, like really that. being intentional. And you have done that with your team huh. is making sure they're fed so that they end up doing better with your customers. And people want to, they search out A plus and they want to come back and they want to do business with you. Well, I feel, you know, a lot of people look at me and say, boy, you've been successful. Well, my success is that I've made my employees successful. Mm. I focus a lot making sure especially management team has everything they need. Whatever you need to do and you need to do it, let's get it for you. Let's support you in it. The guys on the floor, I try to support, you know, they have ideas and, you know, we value ideas. Prior to the cultural change, they might see a bulldozer show up and dirt moving. And they're like, what are we doing? Oh, we're putting a building up. Now I'll go to them like, hey, we're considering a building. And this is what we're going to put in it. Do you have ideas? And I value their input when we design new equipment. Mm -hmm. I want their input because they work in that area day in, day out. Their ideas are a lot better than mine. A couple of years ago, we put a new spray booth. And I said, here's my idea. And they, oh, this won't work. That won't work. This would be great. Can we do this? And when we got done, we had a, a great booth that would have been is much better because of their input. Mm -hmm. But it takes valuing their input and their and what they do and what they bring to the table. Like I said, they're my greatest assets. Mm, that's good. That's so and good. people, I think people need to hear that. And, you know, sometimes I feel like if people aren't the owner or aren't the top dog at the workplace, they feel like they don't have any say in that. But I mm. still think whatever your responsibility or your scope is, you can take these principles and start it in your department or your team or your area. People will notice Yes. And it'll give you greater opportunity to expand your influence. So that's great, Bob. I love that. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're not only stewarding your finances, but you are stewarding your people assets. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're blessed is because it's not about the bottom line and the dollar. It's about right. the people. So on the podcast, we always end with giving a supernatural story or something you've experienced that is different. So I didn't know if you wanted to share. Yeah, I don't know if this would fall under supernatural, but it was a real um, eye-opener for me. Before I realized, realized I was a financier of the kingdom, I was still struggling with making money. Is it okay to have money? You know, and, and we read some scriptures, you know, money is the root of all evil. What well, really says the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, and then there's a scripture in Deuteronomy 8.18 says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, so confirms his covenant. We're created to make wealth. But I was struggling with wealth. There was jealousy in the church. Even though I went here, there's I knew that there were people like, Man, it must be nice to have new cars. I just hear things, and I was just beating myself up. God, why am I making money and, and making people around me miserable? And I was, I was just struggling with it. And I remember they were having a prayer night here. I went forward, and uh, Carla said, I have a word for you, Bob. And I said, great. And she said, God's telling me that, that he wants to bless you so much in finance. It's going to be pressed down, running over, pouring into your lap. And I just started crying. And I wasn't crying because I was excited about the word. I was crying, no, God, I don't want that. God, why would you do that to me? I was feeling the pressure of everybody being jealous and envious of what I had. And, and I was just trying to honor God. And just all I didn't do is work. And it was before I really came up with the idea of being a finance of the kingdom. And so I, I started, I, I really got mad about it. I was like, God, I, I don't receive that word. That prophetic word can't be for me. And it was amazing. My finances dried up. 
we went into a very hard time financially in our business where we weren't making money. We were starting to lose money. You know, I was just, Lord, what's going on? You know, we all seem to turn to God when things are tight and it's, God, you got to save me. I'm, I'm hurting. At it. I'm having trouble making my house payment and this and that. Funny how we turn to God then, but when things are good, it's like, oh God, I got this. We're okay. So things turned bad and I'm like, God, what's going on? And it reminded me of the prophetic word. He said, you told me you didn't want it. <laughs> I'm like, well, well, maybe, maybe I didn't really mean that, you know. <laughs> and then you start backpedaling. And that was the time that led into me realizing that I was a financer of the kingdom. But that word, you know, when we get words, I'm always like, okay, God, is that you or not? You know, but that was one of those words that I really rejected at first. And now I embrace and Lord, what do I need to do? What do you want to do? I want to be positioned that I can handle that and I can honor you with it. You know, he just had to really do some inner healing in me. Why was I so offended by people being jealous or envious and realizing that it really wasn't my fault? I wasn't trying to flaunt anything. I, I'm not very showy. I wear blue jeans every day. I don't own a suit or a tie. I'm pretty down to earth, but I, I struggle with that. And I realized that how can I minister to these people and help them maybe raise their income level or get to obtain more? And and that's partly why I wrote Created Make Wealth was I want to see people, instead of being jealous of it, make a change. Here's your opportunity. Here's the keys to what it takes to, to do better. And you can walk in more. And uh, so that's sort of my supernatural story. That's good that God had mercy and grace on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let, yeah. You, let you backpedal yeah. and yeah. change your mind about that. So, you know, we are beneficiaries of your stewardship in the kingdom and appreciate that. We're we're so excited. Bob is going to be at the Upper Room for two Sundays in January talking about finances. You can get a copy of his books on Amazon. Created to Make Wealth is the first one and The Christian Entrepreneur is the second one. Find it on Amazon. Read it, learn it. You're going to love it. Bob, we're so appreciative of your time with us today. You did great on the podcast. We think you should do yeah. lots of more. <laughs> Could be a new career side hustle for you. <laughs> you, <laughs> you don't have to travel so far, but we're appreciative of your time. We are, you know, you are part of the DNA at the upper room mm -hmm. and we are yes, blessed and grateful so for that. And you know, it was sad for us to see you and Lori go, but we're blessed that you're still friends of the Upper Room and yeah. that you still have connections and relationships here and looking forward to hearing more in January. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, I wanted to make sure when Lori and I did leave, we left on good terms because we do appreciate the people here and love the body here and really excited to sort of be coming home to share January 15th and 22nd at the Upper Room and We'll talk about stewardship one week and about giving the other and just seeing increase in our lives. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.